Recorded live from the mats of Radical MMA in New York City, the Martial Culture Podcast. Your source for in-depth combat sports and martial arts insights with Coach Renee Dreyfus and Matt Peters. Ring the bell and let's get it on. Hello, everybody. We're back again. Uh, we took a week off, but we're back. Sorry we missed you. Uh, Matt Peters and Coach Renee. Hey. Renee, how you doing? I'm doing great. Fantastic. Uh, we're joined again by a, a very special guest, a uh, requested guest to come back every week, Jilson. Hey. Hello, guys. Thanks for being here again with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming in, in the nice downpour of weather in New York City, <laughs> walking around in the rain. It's, uh, it's like quite, quite, uh, quite some rainstorm before. Right. Yes. I, I gave my word, so I have to own it. Yes, well, it's appreciated. At least it's not snow. That's what I always say whenever it's raining, like downpours, as long as it's not snow. You're, not a, more you're not a fan of snow? No. Are you a fan of snow? I love snow, as long as I don't have to commute in it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't have to, like, uh, trudge around in it. If I can play, you know, uh, snowball play fights, it, snowball just have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just enjoy the ski in it, you know. But mm. snow is so beautiful. You know what? After snow, New York looks so pretty. It's like three days later, it's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right after, right when it's snowing, it's like New York is kind of special. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, like a heavy snow where everything's shut down, too, and yeah. you can just look out your window and just see the quiet New York City streets. That's one thing. You know, Radical, we, we, we try and be open 365 days a year, and the one day we, uh, we closed was the, the day that de, Bla, uh, de Blasio made us um, close for the blizzard. And I'm like, we would have had 365 days open. We had to close for the blizzard, though. Hmm. Should have should opened, though. <laughs> Did he make you close? Yeah. What a trick. Are we voting for him in a couple of days? No, we want to get political. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's not go down that rabbit hole. Uh, first things first. Uh, yeah, we had enough, enough feedback from, like, you know, trashing martial arts. death <laughs> hate mail from, uh, from, from listeners. Sure. I know we don't need uh, any alt-right people or, or liberals or whatever. We love mail. Send it on yeah, over. No. Hate mail or, or, or praise mail. Um, I want to thank NutriChef NYC for being a sponsor of the podcast, NutriChefNYC at gmail.com or NutriChefNYC.com. Uh, they do some great meals. Um, I've been doing it for about a month now. Oh, my gosh. I've been doing it for about a month now. They send me uh, dinners. I've lost 10 pounds just by eating just these meals and, like, replacing what I, the garbage I was eating before. And I haven't really added any activities to my, my activity level. But just from eating these, these meals, I've lost 10 pounds. They say good. abs are made in the kitchen. Well, I'm working on it. I got one so far. <laughs> Five more to go. <laughs> Jilson is such an expert at at, uh, at nutrition, and uh, um, yeah, we have to talk about that sometime. Uh, I, I uh, I've never been so in shape and conditioned as when uh, Jilson was training me for my fights. Yeah. He's the the best, the most knowledgeable guy I've ever met in, in that sphere. Do you do uh, meal prepping, or do you do just like you know what you're going to make ahead of time? Or? Uh, the way how I personally. Help my clients or, or fighters back in the day is like if you do understand the main concepts, you'll be able to make choices yourself when the coach is not around you. But that's when it matters because you can spend with some time with one hour, two hours a day with your coach, or if you're a nutritionist, if for that matter, and then you go home. So you have now 22 hours on your own to make your own choices. If you do understand. That the concepts, I don't need to be relying on your willpower in your urges, your cravings, 
controlling them to do what is right. Because now you understand the physiology behind and you understand why you're doing why, what you're doing. And when you know that, you just like, it's like, it's a, there's a difference between commitment and conviction. I'm committed to lose weight. I'm committed to be healthier. I'm committed to eat cleaner. This is commitment. It's still initially, initially based on your willpower. We all know based on science that willpower, willpower is limited energy. And after a while, you have to really put systems in place to turn this into a habit. And then naturally, this will become the new default settings for you. So I teach concepts first, when you understand why you do what you do, then connecting to your objective, you, you, you will succeed. That's really, that's awesome because uh, I, I try and do that at the same, at a certain level in, in jiu-jitsu because, you know, I was telling one of my students recently and I said, um, you don't want to have this uh, overflow of facts like, put your right arm here, put your left foot here. You don't want to remember moves uh, just, okay, this is a 10-step move or a five-step move or whatever it is. You're going to remember this move and this is another move here and this is four steps and this is another move here. You don't want to remember the moves in steps. Of course, in the beginning when you learn it, that's the way you do. But you have to learn the principles and the fundamentals, the, the leverages, but the concepts behind the move because then it's not like a memory game. What do I do first? What do I do first? What do I do first? You, you know where you want to be because you know what you want to achieve on the meta level. And I think that's a really important way to teach when students are ready, obviously in the beginning. But I, I think any type of learning can't be like, do, don't, you know, don't eat fish today. Don't eat you know, carbs tomorrow or whatever. Think, teach them on the meta level. They're going to be able to make good decisions on their own and they're going to start, start um, to developing on their own, you know? Yes. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a great point. That's how I see it. Anyway, so there were some MMA fights last night. There were. Uh, fight night in Brazil, Sao Paulo. Yeah. Fantastic uh, card. Some exciting stuff had went down, and uh, Brazil represented itself well and had some, some wins and some defeats, unfortunately. Um, Machida was a surprise. I think everybody was... Was everybody surprised at that, or was that... I mean, it's two years off, coming back. Two years off. That's, Ring rust is a, is a thing. Yeah. Um, and to be knocked out in the first round by somebody who, I mean, he has a history of, of some knockouts. I think the last six fights he's had knockouts, but mostly a wrestler. Um, interesting fight. Did you guys watch it? I did. Yeah. I did. Um, and Jack Sock, had a, who's, a, who's a more MMA commentator, had some interesting thing. He was very critical of uh, Machida's karate style because Machida does, according to Jack Slack, and I have to watch it again, but I... I my gut is I disagree uh, uh, because I, I think it's a different reason why I lost. But I, and I'll get to that in a second. It's we, Jules and I always talk about this. MMA is in the transitions. And, um, and it's not in like how good a striker you are, how good a wrestler you are. It's how good a jiu-jitsu guy. It's how you put them together. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment in the fight and, um, where, where the transition came in, in, important. But, but Jack's like something interesting, and I think that's... that's important to say that he says karate guys when they punch a lot of times they bring their other hand back to their hip and it's a training modality to get your your hips to move it's called hikite it's the pulling hand to your hip and um he was saying that you know macha has a habit of lowering his hands when he punches because of this training method that is like you know designed 
for you to learn how to move your hips, but nobody actually should really do that in, in combat. Mm-hmm. But he still has that habit, and you know, he dropped his hand. And that's an interesting point. And I, I don't know if I necessarily agree or disagree, but that was like an interesting point where sometimes your habits become you know, these cages that you get caught in. They become things that, that lead to your defeat. But what I saw last night was something different. What I saw was this. Um, they were clinched up. They were kind of clinched up, and they were dis- disengaging from the clinch. So they were, they, were, they were in this, not full, like, over-unders tight clinch, but they were kind of in this gripping position. And on the moment of disengagement, he, he got hit with the left. We're all dropping things today. <laughs> he got hit with the left, another left, and then, bam, he got hit with the right. And when you, it was that moment of disengagement. And, I, and I'm talking, I'm, we trained with one of my fighters. And I say to him, the minute we start, Drilling, and we're drilling here, you know, like a minute we start doing pad work or whatever, I, I say, don't turn off. So sometimes they'll be like, we'll do a pattern, it'll be like jab, cross, jab, cross, jab, cross, double leg, right? Whatever. And then they'll stand up, they'll walk away, they'll read dust, let's do the pattern again. I really don't like training that way. I think it develops this like lack of understanding of the transition. So from the takedown, the partner has to drill his way up and from the drilling the way up the other guy's still attacking because that's what happens in a fight it's the fight doesn't start when you okay we're gonna break and stand up unless the ref does of course but Mm -hmm. but you know you're always in this flux moment and and understanding that you have to transition from striking to stand-up grappling to ground grappling back to stand-up grappling back to striking and it doesn't stop and seeing how they link together seamlessly is a really important skill and I felt that Machida kind of turned off there for a second he was like I'm striking I'm, I'm grappling here I'm kind of kind of grappling and his hand was a little bit down and then he came over bam left another left and that was the one that really rocked him and then the right came and then there was a concussion and then the ground and pound was just brutal so that's my take is that the there wasn't enough of the in-between positions. Uh, un, un, you know, like he turned off for a second. He lost his focus in the in-between position. Of course, he's a great fighter, mm-hmm. and you know he's he's actually um, a great representative of the sport because I've never seen Macha act in any way that was like over the top, denigrating. He's he's just a great gentleman um, and and uh, martial artist. So you know, just no disrespect to him, but but I think. Sometimes, you know, he goes to this place to do his, his jiu-jitsu. He goes to this place to do his striking. And, and you get caught in your little bubbles. We talked about this, you know, your little boxes. So today I'm doing striking. Tomorrow I'm doing Muay Thai. I mean, doing jiu-jitsu. Or until the next day I'm doing wrestling. Well, that's not MMA. Mm-hmm. The MMA is the, 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 the combination and the transition between. And I, I think there's so much more room for evolution in, in that space. One of my favorite examples of that is Jose Aldo versus, I believe it was Chad Mendez uh, or Joseph Benavides. It was one of the Team Alpha Male guys. But they were clinched, and, and the guy had a back body lock on Jose Aldo. Now, Jose Aldo broke the grip, and as he came around, he just, just knocked him out. And it was, it was transition. Or the Demetrius Johnson you know, transition from takedown right to submission. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, yeah. that instant transition. Well, you know, that, that's what MMA is to me, you know, and, um, uh, or, you know, we didn't really talk about it in the last one about Mighty Mouse, but he had a great one where he was grappling behind the guy and then his leg came up and kicked him in the face. <laughs> I'm like, who does that? Well, the, the best guy, MMA guy in the world does that. Right. So, um, that's my take on that. And, um, you know, you, you, 
you get it, you get you get caught as a striker and you're striking you get in your grappling mode and you don't realize that that overhand particularly when you're disengaging from the clinch that overhand is right there yeah. and um, yeah so um, that that's kind of how I saw that uh, he's rusty he's just rusty should we be worried about Machida like uh, he's 39 years old is what do that- you think Jules you think he's past his prime no to be honest with you no it's a it's a <coughs> It's like asking, has Dan Henderson passed his prime? You know, when yeah. before he stopped fight, fighting, he was still winning. He was winning, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if you just like one punch, win if you will, the over right hand. <laughs> if you win, you win. You win, you win. That's true. Um, I I think though, I I Machida is. You know, they had that two-year suspension. It just looking the way he moved. He he had a, he, he was out for a little too long. Yeah. So to come back and to rev back the the jets up, that might be a little bit difficult. But who knows? I I wish him the best. You know. Yeah, yeah. He's always been a not great fighter. So, mm-hmm. uh, can I make an observation regarding the lever? You know, when yes. You, uh, yeah. I think the comment was. I don't think it was fair. And the reason why is because, example, if you take into consideration when you go for a mawashigiri, like a roundhouse kick, right? We are thought originally to think as your, let's say, I'm a, I'm a orthodox kind of stance guy, so I have my left foot forward, which means I'm kicking with my back leg. So my right hand, I'm, I was taught originally to think as it's a lever. It's a, there is a string that you're holding, and you're gonna pull the string, right, pull, yeah, and yeah. this will help the hip to move forward with such a speed and etc. And this will make the kick be more powerful because you're rotating your hip. You put really the hip into the kick. When you are striking, meaning when you are kicking and you're hitting, based on what was thought, my hand is down, my right hand is down. I still can be somewhat strike uh, with a left hand. If I feel that I can take the kick, if it's a lower kick to my thigh or my rib, and I believe that, no, I can take that, and I still can go for a, my left hand right, to a right, strike. Right, counter, yeah, or just course. like just hold the leg and just go for the, 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 the right hand. So, so I think that it's a, I disagree with the count because uh, I don't think, because there are other levers in other disciplines that do the same thing. The same yeah, way. yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. think that my, my perception, my interpretation in relation to Machida was that, is that say Machida? Oh. Say Mach- Machida. The person yeah, yeah. right? yeah. like, like is so. like the Machida is that there was, of course, the two years that he stayed away. It does influence, it, it does matter when it comes to the timing. Yeah. It does matter. The distance, you know. It, uh, even if you started working and working very frequently in the last three months or six months or even a year to some extent when you come back in the gym, I mean. But people who are maybe you're training with are not on the same level of the fighters who you're going to face. face. And so what happened, your time is a little off. Yeah. And even though you've been, you know, been training for a little while after the the, the layoff, I'd say, at the time that you were not training, people are not necessarily on the same level. And I think that what happened, and Matt mentioned in regard of the Brunson's uh, last wins, it, it was one of the main, uh, uh, let's say, it was known his left hand was uh, dangerous. 
Yeah. All right. It was dangerous, and there was something that he was supposed to be looking after that would be a possibility. So I think that we had enough strikes from Brunson's and wins from Brunson's because of the left hand. So it was something that he was supposed to be looking for during the fight. So I think that the striking, the distance was one point. I think that being rushed, a little rusted, you know, uh, may also have influenced the timing. And I think that maybe he, he tried to, usually he does. When somebody's close the distance, he just go for a right hand usually. And that's how Jay uh, Bader, I think when he won, like, just walked into his right hand. He's just very used to doing so. Only that the first strike was not effective. And Brunson was effective based on the distance mm -hmm. to throw the left hand. And then he got caught in that particular place. Yeah. Totally. I, I agree with you. I think, I think the rust played a factor in timing and totally agree with you. But I think also the rust made that, you know, when, when you're training for a fight, your level of focus, your level of attention is so high. You get used to that higher level of, of intensity, of, 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 of awareness. And it just seemed to me that he, he, was, he had lost a little of that awareness, you know, even before that moment. He, was, he just didn't look as crisp. But anyway, let's let's go back onto the Damian Maya fight, and I really want to use this Damian Maya fight as a as a segue into talking about history. And also, we were talking about like uh, we had a discussion about unique submissions and things like that, unique MMA moments and history of old submissions. And we can kind of go into the history of of um, of submissions and history of, of martial arts in, in in general. But I, I'd like to talk to the Damian Maya fight and use that as a springboard. I I want to say first of all. I have absolute tremendous respect for Damian Maia. He's a great, great fighter. He's proven himself in three different sports now. Sports Jiu-Jitsu, uh, the Abu Dhabi Submission Grappling Championships, and MMA. And he's brought himself to the height of all three. That's an amazing achievement. So he's a great guy. And again, quality, quality gentleman. Always acquits himself well. But um, he, he's, you know, if you look back at the old Anderson Silva fight way back when, when he fought for the title at 185. And then you look at, a little bit more recently, the Rory McDonald fight, which he you know, also lost. And then, re more recently, the Tyrone Woodley fight, which he also lost. He lost in identical ways. And yes, you can say that um, his striking improved. Like Jilson and I were just speaking about that before. Then he was, he was hitting him in the first round. And probably he took the first round on points. Um, uh, because he hit him with the overhand and cut Colby uh, Covington. Um, so for sure he had some improvement, but I always see the same problem. And it goes back to transitions again, is that his transition from striking to takedowns and his, his finish in the takedowns is wrong because his distance is wrong. And he, uh, um, a friend of mine who's, who's, who, uh, who crit criticizes, uh, I mean, you know, critiques, I should say, uh, Damian Maya's wrestling ability, he says he does not drive his hips forward enough. And that is true because he goes for these low, lower singles, not a low single, not like a John Smith low single ankle, but he gets a thigh, but he's underneath the guy and he uses rotation backwards instead of, and sometimes hooking the leg, like turking the leg, but he does not drive forward. He's not good at like blasting forward. And that's really important when you have someone who's very stable. So when you're shooting a double or single, you need the right distance so that you can drive your hips forward so you can destabilize them to make their sprawl less effective. So what Damian Maia does is he shoots the single, 
the guy sprawls on him, and he uses his ability to rotate in a circular motion kind of to the side rather than driving his hips. And Colby Covington's a D1 All-American. He's like, you ain't going to do that crap to me. And he just got stuck there. If you notice, he got the single a few times, and it was like he was planted, and it almost looked like he was doing nothing. Because mm-hmm. he was on his knees. You should not be on both knees when you shoot doubles. But he's on his knees. He's stuck. And then Colby either stopped the sprawl there, or he, he, he uh, started punching him, or he disengaged. And he won almost every single takedown exchange. And um, it's because there's a flaw in his wrestling, and that flaw comes from what Jilson, you were saying, the way he sets up his striking, that he doesn't engage and control the distance. And I, I want to go back to Jilson because you said some really great points before we started about how Damian Maya's striking improved, but how he still has, doesn't have the follow-up. So great, great points, and I would like to get it for the listeners too. The way how I interpreted what I saw, it's uh, based on bouncing off uh, coach Rene, is that especially Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters, and I say based on my experience of working with them throughout, you know, over two decades, it's a, there is a little of, sometimes they are not as open to learn a, some new things. To improve. They get stuck in their box. They are, they are okay for the striking part. That's why you see like BJ Payne when he's really improved his boxing skills. You're talking about Damon Maia, mm. his striking is better. But when, but when it comes, it can only get better. Yeah, but when, it, but and what is the the difference? Like the, the the hands are better, the kicks are better. Like Vito Belfort, you know, the kick improved a lot. Oh, tremendous! He always had the hands. So what is the common denominator? <coughs> These are striking disciplines, not grappling disciplines. Yeah. Which means is for me, from my interpretation, I'm not saying I'm right. Is my interpretation is that I'm comfortable with learning the striking, but when it comes to the grappling disciplines, um, I'm I'm okay. What I know is enough, right? And then becomes a roadblock in your improvement process. Absolutely. So I see that I see that all the time with strikers too. Is that they come to jiu-jitsu and they're like, oh yeah, I want to learn grappling, but then you're like. Yeah, your striking actually is not as good as you think it is. They're like, no, 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 I got that covered. You're like, dude, your chin is up and your hands are down. But, you know, when you, we were talking about identity before, your identity is a grappler. That's, I know what I know. So it's hard for someone to say, hey, you don't know, you, you know, don't know this, you don't know that. It's, it's, it, you have to kind of crush that ego and, and learn. And I have to say the top, a lot of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, um, Rafael Lovato Jr. is one, um, and Shanji Barrow, there's a video of them training uh, in um, Iowa, in, um, I don't know if it was the Hawkeyes, I'm not really sure, but a very famous wrestling team, like super hard wrestling room. They went in there, and they were just students, and they are wrestling. It was a wrestling room, and they are like, we're here to be students. And, and I think that's why they're top of, uh, of, of the food chain in, in the jiu-jitsu world, too, is because they're, they're super open-minded on, you know, learning. But, but you're right, not everybody's like that. They're... And, and for sure, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighters, starting with Valij Ismail, I remember his loss to Takahashi, is because he was doing that, you know, that the Bayanada, the terrible, you know, driving football tackle takedown, and uh, couldn't finish the, the takedown way back when, you know, 20, 20 years ago. There's a history of, of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys not having the best wrestling, and the ones that seek out the wrestlers... Um, to improve, do well. The ones that don't, um, 
you know, they, they, they get, they get mired in that, 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 that kind of crappy takedown met- methodology, you know? So to be, to be fair to the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighters, right? There are many, many of them chose to be open-minded and train, mm. yeah. right? So I just want to honor this particular group. I'm talking about actually the majority. It's still, the majority is still very caught up into this particular type of a mindset where I'm a grappler. So I don't need to learn more things from the, the Samba guys with the lock, you know, the foot lock. I'm okay with that, the transition. I don't need it. I'm, I'm, I'm a ground game. I don't need, you know what? Let me just t- teach me those. I'm going to load those, the throws that are usually as part of the curriculum of some Brazilian Jiu Jitsu academies and dojos. And they, they learn some tr- throws and they think that they know judo. And, and when it comes to the ground game, and the, sorry, the transition to the ground game with the wrestling, we go with this by another. I grew up with people doing all only by another. And you mentioned Valid Smayo with someone that I, I, I know since the, the early 90s. And, uh, but if you look at the, the, the uh, still modern MMA, I'm not going to go all the way 20 years ago. Mm. If you're still going to see Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys, big names, big names, if you watch, even like five years ago, yeah, not to go to even uh, yeah, right. when they got tired, the takedowns are so sloppy. Oh, totally. And it was the ultimate fighter recently too. There was a Brazilian guy, and on the ground he looked so slick, and then he got tired, and he went back to that old like bum rush head forward, just driving terrible football tackle by it out. It was like oh, and he just got crushed. We say like in, in martial arts, um, when you are. In a panic mode, mm. when you were really under a really, really high level of stress, you default to the level that you mastered. Right. That's right. So I'm tired, I'm panicking, I have to, I'm desperate, I need to take this guy down. And, and that's the level you mastered. That's just the kind of level of taking down I w- I that would you say have. This, I would say this, you go back to this, and I've seen it many times, you go back to your like, first lesson. Because I, I still think, you know, I still see like, the way they, they teach you know, takedowns, like if you look at any decent wrestler in MMA, his worst takedown won't be so bad. Where you look at, you know, and then you take any jiu-jitsu guy, his worst armbar won't be so bad. Because it's something that they're, they're and the worst day, they won't go down to a certain level. Because there's always an understanding of this is how you do it right. And Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys sometimes don't have that understanding of the takedown game. And, and especially now, you know, you're talking about 20 years ago, but now the, in, in the sport realm, there's so many people who sit guard. They don't practice their takedowns. So they have no idea how to drive those hips forward. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's Damian Maia is not from the, the more modern generations from, from, you know, 20 years ago. But still, there were a lot of guys who sat guard. And, and my biggest, my biggest problem with jiu-jitsu training is sitting guard is you guys should wrestle train you know judo and and be, to be fair to Damian Maia Damian Maia has some nice judo trips but his 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 takedowns are generally more gi dependent he, he's kind of had that that gi takedown fighter game and the one takedown that was really nice is when he took down Chel Sonnen but he did it with the Sasai Surikomiyashi which is a typical gi throw but he hit it no gi and it was a little bit later in the round he caught he caught Chel Sonnen uh, unawares but um but that, that was, a, that was a, a bit more judo takedown, which I think is a little bit more for that generation of jiu-jitsu guys. This is something that they do. But 
when it comes to straight, you know, Western wrestling, um, they, they need to improve. And um, this this is a, it's a good sounding board because uh, I have to say that you know it was Kano Jigoro Kano's birthday yesterday is October twenty eighth, and uh, Kano to me is this amazing. Uh, uh, you know, he he. People think of Bruce Lee as this this guy who's you know a martial arts arc. You know, arc, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's martial arts uh, icon, and he for sure he is. You know, but nobody has had the same level of uh, influence as as Jigoro Kano has. If you look at it, and and one of the things that Jigoro Kano said, and a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys are critical, is like he was not the biggest fan of the ground game. Now he was learning. He you got to give the guy credit because he stepped out of his box. Because um, and I'll tell the story, but uh, but Kano was always more more oriented towards throwing, and it was only until his uh, 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 fighters, his his students, came up against ground fighting guys and got you know uh, lost lost uh, pretty badly. Um, um, that he said, okay, we have to integrate much more ground fighting. And, and he had an open mind, and, and he changed. And, and to the point where uh, judo developed their own t- parallel rule set, set. So there was the regular judo rules, and then there was a ground fighting rule set where people would focus on ground fighting. Um, and that, that continued for a long time. So he was very open-minded in that sense. When we see the opposite, where the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the submission fighters, are not as open-minded to, 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 to have an alternative rule set that forces them to wrestle. And... and um, I want to go back because the the uh, the judo world and and we, people are close minded all the time, but but the judo world is generally a world where it was supposed to be developed on what what is the most maximum efficiency, and um, and the idea was the maximum efficiency of using your body to defeat an assailant, right? And and Brazilian jiu jitsu has picked that up, but you have to be efficient in your striking. You have to be efficient in your takedowns. You have to be efficient in your submission wrestling and your submissions. And for sure, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has, has really, really um, evolved the, the, the submissions. And we can, we can talk about that, you know, the, all these crazy submissions that come out that are really interesting and wonderful. But, but um, there are very few Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighters who started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where you can say, wow, they understand the highest level of leverage in the takedown game. Where they understand the highest level of leverage in the in the striking game? No, this is why I through and through I've been many styles in my life, but you know our academy is called Radical MMA for a reason. It's not Radical Judo, it's not Radical Jiu Jitsu, it's not Radical Karate. It's it's Radical MMA because the point of MMA for me is to explore those leverages, those efficiencies of every single human weapon. You know, uh, barehanded, you know? Like, what's the best, most efficient way to punch a guy in the face? What's the best, most efficient way to kick him? What's the most efficient way to take him down? What's the most efficient way to break his arm, to choke him out or break his leg? Or to pin him, or to control him? Or to, and how, what's the most efficient way to transition between those two? And um, so that's why MMA fascinates me and, and drives me. But going back to Jigoro Kano, you know, he was... He was always a proponent in the beginning of, of, uh, of takedowns. And one of the reasons he said is because you have to get the guy to the ground. You know, you have to take him there if you want to submit him. And, um, and, 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 you know, there's some truth to that. And it plays out because if you look at MMA, 
cross-trained fighters in MMA. What is the most important element of training? Is it stand-up striking? Is it stand-up grappling, takedowns, or is it ground fighting? And you know, in the beginning of MMA, people were like, oh, you know, learn jiu-jitsu, that's enough. And then we realized it, it, it wasn't. In today's, or in, not today, the last, since 20 years, the defining, more than 20 years, starting in 1999, the defining factor of most MMA champions is they have a tremendously skilled base in takedowns, in the takedowns. Randy Couture, going back, Randy Couture, we mentioned uh, uh, Dan Henderson, John Jones more recently, uh, Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw, Cody Garbrandt, all these people who are known as strikers, they're known as strikers, they started out as wrestlers, not just grapplers, as wrestlers. And wrestling, given a cross-trained scenario, if a wrestler has no other cross-training, he'll probably get submitted when he takes the guy down, or he won't know how to defend and block punches. So cross-training is key. But given a cross-trained scenario, the determining, the determining factor and the determining factor of Damian Maya's fight was who was the better wrestler and counter-wrestler. Mm-hmm. Damian Maya got Cody Car- uh, um, uh, Covington, Covington down. He would have tapped him out probably. You know, if Damian Maya could have finished his takedowns on Anderson Silva way back when, he probably would have won. If Damian Maya could have taken around Rory McDonald, he did once, but Rory McDonald did get up. But if he could take him down repeatedly, or Tyrone Woodley, he would have probably won that fight or gotten much closer to it. The thing is, he couldn't take them down and he couldn't hold them down. When he, Damian Maya does, he wins. But that's, that's because his, his understanding of the takedown game is not up to par with the guys he's competing with. And let's put MMA aside because or UFC and unified rules aside. Let's look at um, a guy named. There's a guy named um, Rory. Um, shoot, I forgot his name. Rory Singer. Rory. The book is right behind you, Justin. <laughs> it should be in there. I forgot his last name. Rory. I believe it's Singer, but I'm, I always mix, mix him up. I'm going to go check in a second. But um, he's a very, very famous self-defense theorist, and. Um, He's been, he's, he talks, he's been in the self-defense world for a long time. And he says, if um, the, the most important thing for you to do is train in a, in a uh, um, cross-training environment, that's going to prepare you for adaptation of self-defense. You should be training in, in a cross-trained environment, meaning MMA. You know, you should learn how to defend strikes. You should learn how to take people down. You should learn how to submit people. These are very, very important. But, um, but... If you did not have access to a cross-training environment, learn a takedown art. And um, there's, this, there's this good book, uh, and I, I don't remember the name, but it's by an African-American author. And he traces the top African-American street fighters. Not, not, not fighters um, you know, in, in rings, but he was mostly talking about people in prison and things like that on the streets. People had raps. It was, it was a really good break, but I'll see if I can, I can find it. It came out years ago. It was like... Um, uh, in in the in I you know I forgot the name of the book shoot but it's like the common denominator of all these street fighters was they had a great wrestling background hmm. and and you know there, there's a, he talks about the, the 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 guys in prison who were really known as prison fighters and almost always they they were great wrestlers to begin with and there's something to be said about you know knowing how to handle yourself. In that tight clinch and manipulating another body, after you know that, everything else is easy. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so 
you know, you look at the origin of, of, of Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, and it comes from three major traditional Japanese martial arts. It comes from Tenjin Shinryu, which is a battlefield throwing art, it had some grappling. Yoshin-ryu, which is also battlefield art, some grappling, a little bit mostly by Enkito-ryu, which is a total, absolute throwing art. And, and if you, you, you see, these three are mostly battlefield styles. And those are what fed into judo. Now, why? What's going to be the most dominant thing on a battlefield? Well, it's probably not going to be punches. We talked about before because somebody's wearing a helmet. But if you can pick a guy up and slam his head right into the ground, not a lot of things hit harder than the earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that gives you a tremendous advantage, whether it's on the battlefield, whether it's in a self-defense scenario, whether it's in modern MMA. It's a commonality. You must have a high level of, of understanding the leverage of picking up another human being and slamming him on his bed. <laughs> you know? And, and, and it never changes. What, why is Joanna Jajurjic so dominant is because you nobody can take her down, you know, or she they can't hold her. Now it's not because she has great jujitsu, although I, you know she's supposed to have pretty good jujitsu. But it's like if somebody can take her down and hold her down, then she's not going to be able to access her tie fighting, you know, tie boxing. You know, if if um, Damian Maya can get you down with his wrestling, he can access his Brazilian jujitsu knowledge. But without that takedown, he can't. You know, if um, and we saw that. Way back when, when Randy Couture fought James uh, Tony, you know, Tony is a great boxer. And yeah, he was out of, his, out of his prime, but so was Randy Couture. And it was like a joke because Randy just shot him. Tony's like, what the hell is that? He falls over and gets tapped out. And, and, you know, understanding how to stay balanced, how to stay on your feet when somebody's trying to rock your balance is one of the most fundamental skills. And this is why Kano was always leaning a little bit more towards... You know the takedown takedown arts, and though he had an open mind and said, "Hey, submissions are great too," so that's not actually true that he was anti-submissions. You know, some people say that, but uh, he he open mind and even as I said, allowed a submission-based tournament system in in the judo world. But uh, but takedowns are absolutely key. They're 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 fundamental to to success in the cage, and fundamental for self-defense. Mm-hmm. So uh, a good base of, of wrestling is a good place to start? Yeah, wrestling or judo, Russian sambo, anything that gives you a takedown. Or um, Machida was very, very um, dominant because he actually has a sumo base. People don't realize that Machida trained sumo as a kid huh. and uh, under his dad. But also, you know, sumo is very integrated to Japanese cultural festivities. They, they always have like local sumo, sumo terms. So a lot of Japanese, even Japanese abroad, can grow up, depending on the community, uh, not so much here in America, but but um, they can grow up with festival sumo, you know, where you go in and you see little kids, even at three years old, four years old, wrestling each other. Hmm. And uh, let me tell you something. That's a little anthropological fact. Name any country in the world, any cultural group in the world, any kinship group. They there are many cultures in the world that do not have striking arts. Indigenous peoples or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are many cultures, many cultures that do not have submissions in their martial art arsenals. There is not one culture on this planet, anywhere, Western Europe, uh, South America, Native Americans, uh, Asian tradition, Middle Eastern tradition, Africa. There's not one group in this world, that cultural group, that does not have a historical heritage wrestling or folk wrestling style every single human um, community has wrestling 
that should tell you something about how important it is to understand the base of stand-up grappling. Mm -hmm. Where every single community that has ever existed on the planet, whether it's traditional Native American, uh, uh, there's a great video of Anderson Silva actually training with the Native Amazon peoples, and they're wrestling. And they're actually really good. And Africa has a great uh, wrestling tradition that's not many people know. It's called loot, which means fight. But uh, and they, there's a few different names, but that, that's the one I'm familiar with. Where it's actually wrestling, but they do allow some strikes as well. But there's wrestling. Um, uh, I know you can be in Senegal, or is it in Nigeria? I'm, I'm mistaken, but you can actually be a superstar by being a uh, a folk wrestler. Uh, India has uh, kushti wrestling. Uh, uh, of course, the Western Greco-Roman and freestyle traditions. Um, wrestling is everywhere in every single culture. Wow. There's, an, there's a reason for that. Something about that, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But those singlets don't look very good, though. They right. change them. They change them. <laughs> they, 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 now they wear, like, Under Armour rash guards and That's stuff. Good. You know? <laughs> and that many people can pull that look off. Yeah, yeah. Borat kind of did that in his day. <laughs> <laughs> he ruined it for everybody. He ruined it, right. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so Damien Maya actually said that he was uh, talking about either retiring in the next year or the next two years. Now, do you guys think that that's something that he should look into with this defeat, or does he have decades ahead of him to be a competitive fighter? Maybe decades, maybe a little too much. <laughs> he's already 40 almost, though. That's like, will he be fighting when he's 59? Well, maybe, maybe <laughs> fighting in the UFC. He could fight in maybe other uh, promotions and do like the combat jiu-jitsu. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure as a competitor he'll have something. You know, they're, they're, Henzo Gracie just had a, uh, a old veterans grappling match at the Abu Dhabi's. And, uh, you know, there's always a place, especially in, in grappling, where you don't have to worry about head trauma. But mm-hmm. in MMA, um, I have to give it a handout to Dan Severn. I don't know if you know, Dan Severn is one of the pioneers that made. The guy has like, he's like still fighting. The guy is crazy. He's not fighting in major shows, but he, he just, um, he actually fought a guy I know. Um, they call him the Rev. And I, I think he gave up, Dan Severn gave up 20 years on the Rev. And uh, Rev is it's, it's not a very good friend of mine. He's just an acquaintance, but uh, he's a very good jiu-jitsu man. And uh, Dan Severn beat him. <laughs> Like, wow. Jesus Christ. You know, so, so uh, in MMA, and that was an MMA. Huh. But um, obviously he's not fighting on the highest level. So, so could Damian Maya fight into his 50s? It's possible. It depends where he's fighting. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he should. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, head trauma. And then um, that is it's a big issue. But, you know, there's always some sort of competitive ring that he could probably get into. But he has to, in the next few years, he has to be more diversified. He has to improve his wrestling, and he has to improve his transitions between the striking and the wrestling. You know, he's, he's throwing these strikes that are just too far away, so he's shooting from way too far away, and he can't get his hips in. Mm-hmm. So if he, he can't get his hips in, he's not going to take down the high of the Tyrone Woodleys. He's not going to take down the, um, the Roy McDonald, not in the UFC anymore, but uh, he's not going to take these guys down. You, you're not getting under the guy's leverage, under the guy's uh, center of gravity. You're not going to have the leverage to, 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 to tip him over. It's just not, not going to happen. And, you know, Jilson said, you know, you, when you're tired, you go back to your base, you know, crap level of understanding. And, you know, Damian Maia, when he got tired in the end, his face is bloodied. And he, you know, threw a double leg from way out in left field. And you're like, wow, that's not going to work. That's just a waste of energy. And that is not efficient. It is not maximum efficiency. It is not Kano's way. 
and Kano's way fed into jiu-jitsu and fed into Russian Sambo, the idea is to be maximum, to be efficient in your leverages in how you fight. And just throwing, you know, Hail Mary takedowns, bayonatas, is just like crap. That's just crap. Mm-hmm. And he's got to stop doing that. Otherwise, he's going to have that. I mean, did you see that how bloody his face was after? It was yeah, just he did terrible. not look good. Terrible. Anyway, so that's my take on the fight. But then there was some, there was a, an, uh, another Brazilian fighter on that card who was the exact opposite. His striking was great. His takedowns were great. And he managed a one-arm mounted guillotine. Uh, um, it, was just, it was just beautiful. So, you know, uh, there are people who are learning and understand that. And, and just, there's not a jiu-jitsu guy, but, um, you know, the, the, the old Team Alpha Male guys, they always impress me. There's not one element of the fight where a Team Alpha Male guy looks bad. He's like, wrestles like a, like, and we talked about Henry Suhudo, the same thing. You know, he wrestles really well, they strike really well, they submit really well. Um, you know, to me, that's the, that's, that's the path, is how you can be the most, you know, follow Kano's advice, maximum efficiency. The most efficient method in dismantling another human being. Mm-hmm. You know? I think it's important to understand or to have a interpretation of what maximum efficiency means. That's my, great. That's a good point. My interpretation is how can I reach my objective with the least amount of energy expenditure? Yes, exactly. I exactly agree. Can I just interrupt for one second? So, um, you know, they, they, Hicks and Grease talks about this. He's like, it's not, jujitsu starts not when you're fresh and you're all like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go, I'm revved, my jets are going, I'm not tired. It starts when you're exhausted. What do you have when you have nothing left? That's when jujitsu brings. But, you know, it's, it's true for everything. What, what's your striking going to look like when you're tired? Obviously, there would be some degeneration, but if you look at, you know, Manny Pacquiao or Mayweather, even at their worst, their most tired, there's only so much their technique is going to deteriorate because they just have a general understanding of the, 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 the highest level, not a general, the highest level of understanding of that leverage. And, and what, what, just, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but Jilson, that was a great point. It just made me want to comment, so I'll shut up now. Go ahead. Uh, when it comes to, you, you said a few times now, uh, in terms of uh, the understanding it's, it's, it starts with the understanding. Mm-hmm. Then you need to practice. Yeah. Then you need to train. Long enough, that becomes part of your natural response, right? Natural reaction, if you will. And when you are not, there are two scenarios. One is when you are really tired and there is nothing left, which is Coach Rene mentioned. That's one. And also, when you, even w- when you are in a, in a particular environment, and this is like, let's go talk to Master Helio Grace. You know, like originally, I'm giving this guy 20, 30, 40 pounds. I cannot overcome his strength. Mm. So I still have a lot in me, but I cannot overcome what, I, my, what I'm fighting against. So there are two scenarios, when you have zero and when you are giving away so much, and then you have to tap to you the leverage, which is be more efficient, spend as little as energy as possible. So those two scenarios are very important to, to bring to light. Yeah, you, that is, man, Justin, I'm so glad you're here because I always talk to my students about before you do anything, you have to establish quali- really fundamental structures. 
So it's, it's easier to, comp- to understand in the guard, but if you're in the guard, you have to establish certain structures which will access higher levels of leverage. And that's one thing that Damian Mayan never does in striking. He's always a little rickety, rickety, rickety. His basic structures of how he moves in striking, and not only jiu-jitsu, but how he moves in striking, is he's, he's not allowing him to access more efficient ways of punching and closing the distance. And I think that's the, you know, a lot of people are hiring movement coaches and things like that. And I think that's an important uh, uh, growth in MMA is they're understanding that to, to get these high level, this Elio Gracie style of leverage where I can overcome Valdemar Santana. It's a very famous fight. Valdemar Santana outweighed Elio by like, I was like almost 100 pounds. It was crazy. You know, it was crazy. And they fought for, it's the longest prize fight in history. It's like four hours. Nuts, and you know Elio was exhausted at the end, but still, you know he wasn't like dead. And uh, and Valdemar Santana was a very skilled grappler. And and how do you how do you not get stopped by a guy a hundred pounds heavier than you? Well, you set up these structures of leverage that that nullify or overcome even the force even more. But you have to have clean movement. You have to have those structures. How how does um. How does, how does a really good boxer beat you to the punch every single time, or a really good kicker? Jilson is a very humble, but I, I have to say Jilson is an extremely good striker. And, you know, he's, he beats, you beat people to the punch very often. And how do you do that, Jilson? You know, humility is, of course, he's going to be very humble now. <laughs> but how do you beat people to the punch? It's because you move so well. You move beautifully. And you know how to punch. Yeah, you know how to punch, right? But but yeah, right, exactly. Like movement and then clean and good form. You know, yes, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, how to yeah, strike. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's always like it and does, angles. You know, you know where you need to, need to be. And all this going back to the center theme mm-hmm. today is that the transitions. You know, uh, you can have a great game when it comes to striking. You can have a great game when it comes to wrestling. You can have a great game when it comes to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now. How you can connect these different disciplines, or some of for that matter as well. Mm, yeah. So when you con- how you connect, how well you connect, how proficient you are connecting those disciplines, that's what makes you advance uh, not only faster, but also will make you better prepared to when you're facing opponents who are mostly dominant in one of those disciplines. This always, I, I remember uh, I gave an interview, this was like all the way in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, it was like tri, uh, Tri-State Fight or Tri-State Fighting that come back in the day. I was the... Full contact fighter? Uh, no, but Tri-State. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was, uh, I was uh, back in that, that time, I was the, the MMA coach for Camp Undefeated with Lazlo Hove. And, uh, Do you really have to mention it? Yeah. So, he, he, not he, the most popular guy. He, he's not a bad guy. No, 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 no. He's the owner. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like history is history. Yeah, what is yeah, true yeah. is true. That's, that's what it is. We should, we should, we should erase that part of the podcast. <laughs> so, anyway, so Gossip. I remember that the, during the interview we were talking about other schools at the time, talking about they are MMA schools. But as we would go through the curriculum, we'd go through the classes. They had, they would have kickboxing class or Muay Thai, and they would have Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And my point at the time was, listen, uh, MMA is transition. Yeah. 
That's not MMA. That's so, not MMA. So if you don't have those transition classes, those MMA classes, uh, teaching you, teaching the students how to move from a standing striking position, a standing position, through takedowns to the ground, and if you are a, originally a striker like myself, how do you get back on your feet as quickly as possible, and or how can you defend the takedown to begin with? You're not an MMA school. You just teach different disciplines. You know, you know that's, that's a wonderful point. And, and this is the thing about knowledge. I'm going to get a little bit meta here. But I think what we're in the search for is some sort of um, knowledge that we can, um, we can apply in, in, I don't want to say universal circumstances, but, but we want to have an understanding of leverage in jiu-jitsu, and, and, and see how a certain principle, like Ken is not here, we had Professor Ken on the other day, but one of the things I, I, I love about talking about Professor Ken or even with Jilson is, is that, you know, I see that jiu-jitsu leverage, judo leverage, striking leverage, it's, it's all the same thing. You know, there are only four levers in the world. There's the seesaw lever, the pincer lever, like a pair of chopsticks, you know, uh, the... Um, the wheelbarrow or the the winch, you know, the lever, you know, to 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 wrench something up, and then there's a pulley. So there are only four levers in the world, and those levers are going to be used to punch. Those levers are going to be used to throw. Those levers are going to be used to submit. When you get to the higher level, you can see this this someone like uh, again, I'm talking about Cejudo, but he has reached the pinnacle of wrestling. So probably he can see more at the meta level, and when you when you can apply your knowledge. In your experience in different elements and be effective and functional and see the transitions when you're a real MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's true. You know, I have a, a student here and he's a, he's a professor and we're talking about like, you know, different groups of knowledge. So he's, he's a PhD, uh, uh, he's gotten his PhD, but when he was a PhD student, he's like, you know, there, there are certain people in this, in this, in this uh, coursework that they just study one single thing like, and I, I had this in, in, in my master's uh, thing at Columbia, where it's like, I'm studying 12th century Japanese poetry. And everything else about Japan, I could care less about. Or I'm doing this. And, and I had, a, had an instructor who, um, you know, when I talked to him about the Battle of Narashino, and this is an instructor at Columbia, and obviously no disrespect to my alma mater. But when I talked to him about the Battle of Narashino, he's like, well, this is an important battle. I'm like, you don't realize how important it was. Because this battle itself was fundamental in changing the way the Japanese used firearms and led to a whole sea change in military tactics. And he's looking at me like, so? I'm do, I do poetry. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was no... And in his world, in my world, we, there was no linkages, even though we're both studying Japan. Mm-hmm. To me, that's... that's, that's um, it's sad. And, and, and I see the same thing in a way. Okay, I'm a karate guy. So I don't, I don't ever look at jiu-jitsu. I don't ever see the linkages of what I do to what you do. I don't see tra- you know, more, a more universalistic approach to knowledge. Mm-hmm. And this is what attracts me to mixed martial arts is that it's always universalistic in combat. Um, you know, it, it's, not a, it's not about karate. It's not about Muay Thai. It's not about jiu-jitsu. It's not about wrestling. It's just about fighting. So we have to find these overarching principles that that can apply and can and, and we can we can utilize mm-hmm. and that that fascinates me you know and it it it, 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 it it's always what i'm searching for mm, interesting <laughs> matt's like uh this is another one where i can't really talk 
<laughs> I, I am happy just to listen. You guys are. Sure. You want to change gears a little bit? So I know we were talking about great submissions and things like that. So I, I think we've, 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 we've run out of the topic of maximum efficiency and transitions in MMA and uh, takedowns and all that in Kano. So um, let's do a little, uh, we were talking about submissions and cool submissions in MMA. And, and, I, and, and maybe Jilson can, can uh, also talk about his favorite moments in MMA or something like that. Sure. You know, kind of a history. Um, so we did it before, but let's do it again. Yeah, we kind of went through the, the top ten yeah. list of uh, MMA submissions. Uh, and I, you had some esoteric ones, too. Did, I don't yeah. even know what that word means. But No, but uh, you, you were talking, <laughs> I remember you said, have you ever heard of the Peruvian necktie? Or, yeah, yeah, right, right. 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 So um, let's, let's do what we did last time. Where can you guys name everything on this list? Yes. And we'll go back and forth, and we'll, we'll see if we can check okay. all. The, you, have you seen the list? Are you peeking over my shoulder? <laughs> Justin's tall, so you gotta. Not as tall as you, Matt, but he's tall. Let's see. All right, we got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on the list. Mm-hmm. We'll start with Justin. Can you name one that's on the list? Name a submission that's very popular in MMA or, or known as a, as a really great MMA submission. And then you have to talk about and it. You have to talk about it. Your personal experience with this. <laughs> He's yeah. like, what? Why would you do strikes? Come on, guys. I have 24 years of information in my head. I can remember every single great submission. Well, not, not in a, well, Let me start. Let me start. Let me yeah, start. We'll start. Okay. Um, the I'm going to name uh, a really cool moment, submission moment, that I thought was amazing was... Um, ben... I'm trying to name it. Ben Ben Saunders did. He was the first omoplata in the UFC. We got it. That's on the list. I know. I knew it was because yeah. omoplatas are cool. That's my favorite move. So Ben, the omoplata is a move that actually goes back hundreds of years. You can look at traditional kung fu or even silat has a lot of omoplatas, uh, and in Japanese it's called kata tori hisagatame. Um, but you never saw omoplatas used really often in sport judo competition. And um, usually what they were used for um, was not for submissions because it was, the control position was not as tight. So they were used as, as to sweep the guy, to flip the guy over, or to kind of hold him a little bit if, if possible, or just, just transition to another place. Mm-hmm. But you know when the omoplats came into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is actually not, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu are 1925, but really the omoplata game was developed in the 70s. It was, uh, it was, um, came along with the kind of the triangle game and they kind of came, developed together but 60s and 70s really 70s and um, they developed a really really uh, important uh, control uh, improvements on the control so they started being uh, doing omoplatas reverse omoplatas it's a really really gnarly submission where you just rip the guy's shoulder out there's a samba video of a reverse omoplata being done in the samba world championships about uh, Three years ago, where the guy's shoulder just gets wrecked, and uh, but the you hadn't seen it in high level the UFC high level MMA until Ben Saunders pulled it off, and it was great to see it. Uh, really, just complete omoplata submission. That's one of my favorite moves. It's hundreds of year old, but really improved by the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu world mm-hmm. and filtered out to the Samba world. The Samba guys are very open minded. So you see a lot of those guys drawing on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu knowledge and incorporating it. And in the Judo world, you see more 
jiu-jitsu in the judo world now than you ever saw before and i've actually seen my first almost you know the the, the first like major tournament omoplata win was a few years ago in judo as well uh, more than a few years ago but but uh but in the modern era you didn't see any major judo tournament wins with the omoplata before it just didn't exist so it's, it's fun a, to say too yeah omoplata it's it's it. a it's i believe portuguese what does omoplata mean it's it's the the, the bone in your in your shoulder yeah omoplata is uh, this part of the of the uh, your back you know, if you go, you check the, the skeleton, mm. right? There is the, those two moving parts that come from the center, from the center of your back, right? Right. And there are, there are two, like, two plates, right? Um, what so, is the English word for omoplata? Uh-oh. <laughs> is, is there a word? Is it the, the bone itself, or is it the... It's, it's the structure. You know, the, the structure, structure, right? Yes. Okay, got it's it. The it's plate. not the bone itself. Yeah, it's the there's, the, itself. there's the shoulder blade. But that's not the omoplata, right? Yeah, because when it's shoulder, shoulder blade would be really get into this the the, the connection with yeah. uh, where your humerus is connected right, to. Right. You. So it's like that would be the the the, the area. The omoplata is really the, the those two plates they're moving outwards oh, or inwards. Right, right, this right. is the omoplata. Got it. Got really. It. Okay. Good. Sounds that, like it would hurt. Okay. Sure. So now you name a submission. Yeah. What's your favorite submission? What's your favorite submission? Yeah, I just want to be clear that uh, he's a striker. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what this list came from. It's like my my favorite, my preferred of a choice at this time, or I have to guess what is in the list based on feedback from. Uh, well, you're probably what you say is going to be on the list. Yeah, so. no, just to, you I don't know, think big, so. Yeah, no? <laughs> no, let's see it. Just say if it's not on the list, doesn't matter. All right. So what I liked was uh, Anderson Sylvan and Chad Sonnen. And fifth round, and he got the triangle chunk, uh, choke, yeah. triangle and won. After yes. you know being beat for four rounds, five rounds, and he got submission. That was that was that was a, that was a great moment in MMA. That for, was a great for me. It was triangle. interesting, very interesting to see. Though a failure of jujitsu. No, most people won't look at that. They'll say, "Oh, well, Anderson Silva got the win." Well, after he took two hundred and seventy punches. <laughs> So, you know, jiu-jitsu is about, you know, I believe when you're on your back, you should be guarding yourself. That's the origin of the word guard, the guard, meaning, you know, protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Japanese, the, the, the wrapping your legs around a guy's waist is not called guard, it's called dojime. But the Brazilians called it, particularly, they called it the guard. Why? Because they used that system of control to protect themselves. And Anderson Silva did not. At the end, he did get the win. But, and it was a tremendous win, and it was great, but um, he... His control of, of Chelsea's arms was not as efficient as, as I would like. But, but the triangle choke is interesting because we talked about it in the last podcast that said, you know, a lot of martial arts say, well, there's no, nothing new under the sun. There's no, there's no new submissions. Everybody did this before. You could see guillotines in ancient Greece. Not true. The triangle choke was invented by Oda Tsunetane in the turn of the century, and he was... He, he, it's, it's a newer move, and there's no historical record of the triangle choke ever existing in any other culture, in any other submission fighting form. And the reason for that is because Japanese, I don't even know, unlike most cultures, uh, Japanese and, K- and Koreans do traditionally live on the floor. So that's one of the reasons why submission fighting developed more in Japan, mm-hmm. because you lived on the floor. So ground fighting... Your submission round fighting, I should say, developed because a lot of your life was spent there. And uh, the triangle choke became this thing that was uh, invented uh, by Oda Tsunetane, did not exist before in any other martial art, um, and there is no 
evidence of this. There just isn't. And probably some Kung Fu guy is going to come and say, well, I have the school from the 10th century. Hmm. <laughs> I disagree. There really isn't. And, um, and, but it's, it's interesting. And the, the, it was popularized in judo. Uh, the Gracies, by their admission, did not do the triangle choke until one of the uh, uh, students found an old judo book saw a triangle choke, started experimenting with it. And there's an instructor named Makahom, and he, he uh, actually lives in America now. His son is Neiman Gracie, who is uh, just one in Bellator. And he is a pioneer of the Brazilian style of, of the triangle. And also my coach uh, at one point was Higa Machado. I trained uh, there. I was under the Machado organization. And Higa Machado was considered to have one of the best triangles in the world. And the triangle system, the way you, you use that as a platform for uh, sweeps and transitions to other locks is very, very much a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu thing now, but really only came into four in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. So the triangle system and the triangle choke and the triangle submission, you know, kind of as it is, is, is very, very new. Um, very, very new. Well, that's interesting. And the, the, uh, the reason we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago was the Oven St. Peru Von Fluke choke. Von Fluke. Von Fluke. And it was no Von Fluke. Hmm. <laughs> That's my pun of the week. Because he has like seven of them. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of the, the guy that, that does the Von Fluke in the UFC. He's done it a couple times now. Was it five times at, at this point? You know, I don't know, but it done. And he's done it a lot. And, and you'd think that people wouldn't, wouldn't guillotine him. You know, because uh, because they did that. Do you get the von flu choke by someone going for a guillotine? Mm-hmm. Then you pass the guard, lock your hands, and you tap them out. And uh, so you think that uh, you know Yushin Okami was the one who just just went. You think he would be okay? I'm not going to go for the guillotine, but he did. And then he got tapped out. Like, why did you go for the guillotine? He was trying to prove that he yeah. could do it. Uh, and von flu is von flu is an interesting choke. Um, Again, it's, it's, it's a newer choke. It's a newer choke. And Jason Von Flew was the first one to do it in the UFC and the first one to show it to people. And I'd never seen it before he did it. And he did it in like, a, like it was like 2006 or something like 2004. Mm-hmm. And now it's a, it's a real important part of um, the, the jiu-jitsu curriculum. If somebody goes for a guillotine, you go for a Von Flew choke. Uh, however, um, I was told that it did exist before that. It's just he was the one who popularized it. But I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true or not. Wonder what that was referred to before. Yeah, Von Blue showed up. Yeah, it was like one of those like secret moves that the Gracies wouldn't teach other people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't boy. know. You know who knows? But anyway, interesting. So, okay, so uh, another submission. What's another one, Chilson? That you... oh, it's my turn. <laughs> okay, it's my turn. My turn. Okay, I'm gonna name another one. I'm gonna name uh, the Peruvian and the Japanese necktie. Okay. Now this is really interesting because it goes back to. An, a submission created by Tony D'Souza, who's the first one to use it in the UC, and he created it. That's why it's called the Peruvian necktie. Tony D'Souza's a Peruvian American. He lives down in Peru now, but he's actually grew up here, I think. He uh, was a very, very ex, uh, experienced wrestler. He, he went from wrestling into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, fought in MMA, actually did very well. Really, really tough old school competitor, but he was very technical in his day. He retired, I think, because he just he lost the. The fire, um, but he w- he was a great fighter. But he was known for this move where you hold the guy's head and arm, and then you swing both legs over his head and back. So it kind of it's a very very pro wrestling kind of kind of move. But and, and uh, nobody ever seen it before, and it just crushes the life out of your head. And um, then Shinya Aoki took the proving necktie, modified it, 
made the Japanese necktie, which was a side version of this. Then uh, there's a, a, a famous um, a fighter. His name is, um, oh, he's a judo guy, Kyle uh, Parisian. Kyle Parisian has taken it, and he has another one, and he calls it another variation. He calls it the Armenian necktie, because, of course, he's Armenian. Everybody has to get that nationalism thing going. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one of my students, Max, has his version, which he calls the New Jersey necktie, oh. where he does a little different grip, which is funny, but it's his own grip. I mean, it really is. cement blocks around their feet, too, <laughs> for the New Jersey necktie? <laughs> You, you have to eat like a cheesesteak while you're here. Oh, no, that's, that's Philadelphia. Sorry, wrong, wrong state. Um, a pork, what is it, pork round that they eat in New Jersey? Pork round? Is that the New Jersey sandwich? I avoid New Jersey, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but then, you know, it's interesting because this fed into judo because there's a famous judo competitor. She just retired. I'm so sad she retired. But her name is Yarden Gerby. She represents Israel. And she took the proving necktie, which is a no-gi move, and turned it into a gi move. Hmm. And she used it in the, in, the, in the Olympics and tapped out a Japanese fighter. But you know, Jilson and I, we were talking about closed mind before. You know what the Japanese did? Instead of evolving, because the judo world is very conservative today, instead of evolving, they made it illegal. Oh. It's like, if you're not going to win the way we want you to win, we're going to make it illegal. That's not Just fair. like they made double legs and single legs illegal in judo now. Hmm. They call them pickups in judo, right? And uh, they made all pickups, leg grabs, completely legal because they're looking for some sort of like uh, aesthetic purity. And they're, they, but they're comfortable in their box. They don't want to go out of it. They don't want to change. So, you know, you, we could say the judo world was open-minded at one point. And, and you know, we were very critical of the jiu-jitsu world before, you know, not learning the takedowns. But the judo world is so, so close-minded today in, in terms of allowing new moves, in terms of, uh, uh, and if you don't win with a clean move, you know, that, you know, that it's like, oh, that's bad judo. Well, it worked. What, you know, what, what's, right. what's so bad about it? They're it's efficient. Preserve the, uh, the purity of the, the art. Yeah, but what is purity? You know, you know I, I, there's a great quote don't slavishly copy your masters, seek what your masters sought. But there's this, this kind of like Asian reverence for tradition, but it's actually not as strong in Japan. It's stronger in France. But the kind of traditional element of, of, of judo is so strong. That you know what they did? If you're a judoka, this is one reason why there are not many judoka in MMA. If you're a judoka, if you're registered with IJF, you cannot do an MMA fight. If you do, you will be expelled from judo and never be allowed to compete again. So only the people who are competing in, in MMA who are judo people are retired. So they're like, I don't care, I'm retired. Um, I'm never going to go back to the judo world. But that's really, really sad. And there's, especially in the French judo community, there's a very, very strong negative um, uh, opinion of MMA mm. and a negative opinion of anything that doesn't go back, you know, to the original, you know, uh, the, the the original waza of judo. So the original, like, if it's not original, then we don't want it. And I, I talked about um, in the previous podcast when the Sambists came into 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 uh, uh, fighting the Japanese in in, um, in the judo rings and, and the Russians did very very well against them and uh, you know they, they brushed it under the rug because some of these rolling arm bars they're like oh this is judo no it's not traditional judo it came in the 70s the rolling arm bars came in the 70s mm. and uh, and yet you know the, 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 there was always resistance to it the, the Japanese judo world is um, is not is it can be very conservative. But not, when I was a Japanese Jew world, I mean not just Japan, but uh, France is very very conservative, very anti any type of innovation. Interesting, very sad. But anyway, Yarden Gerby took the Peruvian necktie and she did it in the Olympics and just 
or the, it was the World Championship Olympics, but she choked out the Japanese champion, and it was amazing. And was the was the answer to make it illegal? But anyway, that's the story of the Peruvian necktie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we have time for one more. One more. One with, more submission. Jilson, what's your yeah. uh, another submission that you're a fan of? I'm going to say that not that I'm necessarily I was a fan uh, because it was against a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. So I, actually I was took by surprise, as I believe many other people watching, when uh, Frankie Mir submitted Minotauro. Oh, that was brutal. Oh, and, the and broke yeah, and broke his oh. uh, his humorous. So that it was uh, not humorous. No, I was waiting for that one. And yeah, here comes another pun. <laughs> so it, that like uh, that took me by surprise, mm-hmm. of course, and uh, was a great moment for Frank and American Brazilian Jiu Jitsu practitioners, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. you know what? That's possible. So so I will say that the moment was a surprising moment. That's why it's still registered in my head in the submission. Yeah, no, you know, we were talking about what happens when you don't tap to a submission. Mm-hmm. I've posted a few things on the, the Martial Culture podcast page, but, you know, what actually happens, I posted a, a picture of a person not tapping to a Kimura, just like the Frank Mir one. I'll see if I can pull up the Frank Mir. It's a little harder now these days because the UFC is very... Sakuraba against Ranzo Gracie. Yo, my God, right. That one didn't break the humerus, didn't it? That no, dislocated no, no, no. his shoulder. His elbow. His elbow, right, right. His elbow, you're right, right, right. That was, oh, my God, they're spinning around, spinning around, and the Kimura, bop! And it comes. And the Kimura is a very interesting... The reason we call it the Kimura is because of uh, Kimura Masahiko, who was uh, a very, very important historical figure in Judo. There's a saying in Judo, before Kimura, there was never a Kimura. After Kimura, there will never be a Kimura. And you know, everybody who trained with him, and there are people who trained with him in the 70s, they said nobody felt like Kimura. And Kimura and Elio had a... A historic match in was it in Maracanã or Maracanzinho? Maracanzinho. Yeah, in in which is a very very famous um, uh, uh, stadium in Brazil, and it was Elio Gracie in 1953. Was it, Gilson? Yeah, something like that, right? Yeah, something like that. I don't want to put him on the spot. You're Brazilian. You must know everything about Brazil. That's not fair. Yeah, talk about Gracie. Exactly. It's not fair. But Kimura came in. And they had this match, and um, Elio was outweighed, but you can see that, um, and he, he defended well, but then Kimura put him into uh, the kind of north-south position, which is you know his knees um, towards Elio's head, and he's facing towards Elio's legs, and does it Kimura, and just rips that arm, and Elio's brother, Carlos, threw the towel in. But Elio refused to tap. Uh-huh. And, and, but out of honor and respect, the Brazilians started calling it the Kimura. Its actual name is Udegarami. And, um, uh, but it's an, a very, very old, old, hundreds-year-old move. Um, you can see it in many, many multiple martial arts styles. But it, it's an it's a incredibly significant... Um, 1951. Thank you, Justin. Right, 1951. Was so thank God for Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but... Um, uh, a historic match, uh-huh. and uh, he evolved the application of the Kimura because, yes, we always had the, the move, but the angles and the new, unique applications, and you can see how devastating it is in the modified the Jilson references where Nogueira refuses to tap and Frank Mir grabs that arm and just snaps it in two. Mm. It's, and Frank Mir is known for that. Do you know the, remember the armbar he did on Tim Sylvia? 
where he did an armbar on Tim Sylvia and broke his arm in two. That was the that was like the radius bomb, though, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, but um, but Tim, Mir is known for breaking arms. Right. So that's the Kimura. It's a historical move too. So you can see a lot of these submissions have very very strong historical antecedents, and uh, it's interesting to trace where they come from. And you know, uh, I have a book. It's it's a uh, it's it's, it's, it's a. Um, Old samurai, you know, jiu-jitsu manual. It's it's it has pictures. The book itself is not old, but it has pictures from. It's got to be 17th century, and you, there's a guy doing a standing kimura lock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Do you remember what it's called? Can oh, the book it? I have. It's yeah. the book I have. I, it's in Japanese. I, oh. It wouldn't make sense to. It's probably to standing kimura. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. Anyway, so those are, those are the submissions. Very uh, awesome. We we didn't we didn't hit uh, we didn't hit all of them, but we yeah. can always come back to them. Yeah, yeah. it was fun fun to talk about the history of submissions, and I'm just so happy to have Jilson uh, join us today with yes. his wisdom. Very much. So. I, I vote for having Jilson on the podcast all, all the time because yes. he's he's my buddy. Yeah. If you want Jilson back, please let us know in our new studio. Yeah. Starting next week, we'll be uh, recording from the new one, uh, new studio. So you have to change it, not live from the rad- mats of Radical I, I can't afford to change it. That, that costs money. Okay, so, so we'll, just, we'll just we'll just lie. We'll say it's the 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 the, the, the mats travel with us. Yeah, bring a mat with you. Yes, <laughs> and we'll put it on the ground. <laughs> well, we and, do have one mat we bring with us. Oh, I'm a traveling mat. Perfect. It's <laughs> um, still if if you are if you are. Renting a space during that particular time frame—that's mm. your space. That's right. So the, the, yeah, I always had. I had. I had an instructor. He said the tatami, the mat. The tatami is a state of mind. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because he was a person who would always say, every moment of my life, I do. I do judo. And and he would. He would. He would walk judo. He would. He would live judo and swordsmanship too, which was interesting because he was a guy that he would never be more than a foot away from a sword. Hmm. Very interesting guy. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. He would never be more than a foot away from a sword, and he was one of the few Japanese people who would walk around uh, armed with the with the weapon, with a sword, or with a knife. He's like, it's part of my heritage, my 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 samurai heritage. It's not for just for battle, but mm-hmm. he's like, I am a samurai. I'm a samurai lineage for hundreds and hundreds of years. I must always be near a sword. Interesting. He's a very interesting guy. Yeah, and a judo master too. Great, huh. great guy. Probably anyway. a very dangerous fella too. If you yep, wanted to be. Yep. Taught me to traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu when I, when I lived there. Wow. He was a judo man, but also traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and, and traditional, traditional Japanese swordsmanship, not the modern kendo. Oh. But I didn't learn that because, you know, me and studying weapons thing is not so interesting. For me. <laughs> <laughs> Close mine. <No. laughs> oh, all right. Uh, so we're going to start wrapping up. I, I want to uh, ask everybody that's listening to this to do us a big favor. If everybody listens to this, shares this with five people. We're gonna we're gonna quadruple, triple, double. We're gonna grow our audience by very huge numbers, uh, hugely, bigly numbers, bigly, bigly numbers. Uh, we need your support to help grow the show. Uh, share us on social media. Uh, find us on social media. Martial yes. Culture Podcast. And we're on uh, Google 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 uh, Play. Play. Uh, iTunes, SoundCloud now, yeah, yeah. and also you put us on one other one, right? Uh, we're on uh, what's it called? It's Tunes cool. Player. Uh, Spotify, Spotify, Stitcher. How do you get us on Spotify? How does that work? Uh, you fill out a form. Okay. Yeah. I just have to no, and I mean, how does a student or a person oh. listen to it? Uh, this is just search for it. If it's not up there, let me know because I, I did submit the form. Oh, you have to do a search for it on Spotify. Yeah, it should just be, okay. Great. Just oh, should pop great. up. Um, but uh, yeah, so a SoundCloud we just added that last week. They're a little annoying with how it works, so it's going to be on a rotating schedule where the the newest one will be posted and then the oldest one will be taken down because oh, you put four up at a time. You can only have four up at a time. So uh, listen while it's there. Because it could be gone next week. 
Um, but yes, share us, please. Um, let us know how we're doing. Give us some support, some feedback. Uh, send all hate mail to Renee uh, directly. Please, no more. <laughs> I don't even know how these people found me on Facebook. They're like, I don't agree with your opinion. My traditional martial arts is great. And I'm not saying that, you know. I, everything's great in context. Or, you know, and if you enjoy what you do, that's the most important. But mm -hmm. there's also what Jill and I were talking about, maximum efficiency, efficiency towards what goal. If the goal is combat and the goal is the destruction of another human being, then there's some objective criteria that we have to meet. You know, right. so I never meant to denigrate anybody, including Jocko Wilnick. You know, some students were like, "Oh, you know, you don't like Jocko." No, I think he's an amazing fighter, an amazing martial artist. You know, it's just it's just understanding certain points of view and and, and, and a positive you know critique, and that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, we're having conversations. We're so having no, conversations. Nobody get upset. We're just open minded. Yeah. Open mindedness. We're no, we're no, all open minded here. No more hate mail. I'm a very sensitive person. Okay, so all right, so I'm not as sensitive. So because Matt is requesting, so there's nothing I can say about it. So he's requesting opinion. We, we of course we want to get some feedback as well. Mm -hmm. uh, also in relation to topics, you know, things that you guys would like to to expand a little bit. Yeah, that's a great idea. If there's another option now for those who will, let's say, would share a particular type of opinion that is the opposite of the particular vision or experience of the the, the people here, that's completely fine, as long as you are, you show some level of respect. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to have that kind of constructive dialogue, and mm -hmm. I learn by discussing things with Jilson. I, you know, Jilson and I we don't always agree, which which in, inspires me because it makes me think about what. What and you know most more often than not, Jules convinces me why I'm wrong. <laughs> it's, uh, okay, so that's not true uh, necessarily. I'm just saying that uh, Coach Rene he said himself he's a little sensitive. I'm not, and uh, whatever you think it is, it is for you. Is your truth, and I don't care. <laughs> I have my truth, and we can expand on it. We can talk yeah, about yeah, it. Right, right, but right, if exactly. you're gonna tell me. Uh, that your truth is the absolute truth, then of course it's going to have an issue right, because right, there is right. no such a thing. No and system. that's why you're going to lose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See, no BS on the, in Jilson world. Love it. Anyway, well, thank you, thank you, Matt, for a wonderful podcast. I think it was great. Yeah, it was fantastic. And we have the the next one is going to be about the hero's journey, yeah. the more the more spiritual side of the martial arts. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, check us out on social media, uh, Christopher Media shows. Check all the Christopher Media shows out at ChristopherMedia.net. Support the entire network and you support us. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Marshall underscore culture and on Instagram at Marshall Culture Cast. Please leave a review on iTunes and we'll see you next time on the Marshall Culture Podcast.